0: All right, welcome everyone back to the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. I'm Kevin Libwit with Andrew Page. We're from Theogen, and today we're going to be talking about the use of next gen sequencing in bioinformatics in the world of foodborne pathogen surveillance, something that both myself and Andrew have a lot of experience in. And Andrew, you're, you've been working in this field for decades now at this point.
1: Oh, God, don't don't say that now. You know, you make this <laughs> happen. But uh, yeah, so like I was working on foodborne pathogens somewhat in, in the Sanger Institute years ago, and then I was in the Quadram Institute, which used to be called the Institute for Food Research. So, you know, for 115 years, it was always just doing food, 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 and expanded out from there. So I haven't done food for a long time. Um, and I'm currently on a UK government committee with the Food Standards Agency called the Advisory Committee for the Microbiological Safety of Food. It's a bit of a mouthful, but basically what they do is they do... I guess risk assessment for um, foodborne threats, uh, obviously with, with microbes, um, for the UK government, and that, you know, it, it's an important thing. Mostly, food in in our world is uh, actually really really safe, but occasionally there can be very high consequence things that come along, and you need to deal with those, or you need to update things to to deal with modern advances. Like, you know, dark kitchens—that's a new thing. You know, like when you you know when you go onto Uber Eats or or some kind of app. And you order something often it can come from a random place that you don't really know what it is you know it could be in a warehouse it could be someone is uh, renting space in a cafe you know in a cafe kitchen to to do something at night and so there's extra new threats that uh people had never considered you know 30 years ago when they're making a lot of regulations and then the same with food delivery services you know we have um like kind fresh and uh, a load of others that um deliver food to your door but you know what, what are the threats there, you know, like meat, being, obviously being in, in coal packs or whatever, getting to your door, is it okay? What if it takes a little bit longer? You know, what if the truck is a bit too warm, this kind of stuff. So there are many new things that we have to consider. And so it's always good to keep on top of that before a problem occurs. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially that business model of dark
0: kitchens. I don't think I've ever heard that term, but as soon as you explained mm-hmm. it, I knew exactly what you talked about, because it's very common. This? I don't even know. I, I It's a, maybe... I don't know the term. I was going to use the word phantom kitchen, but that's me just trying to figure out what to call it. I think that makes sense. Because it'll be like an app. And what happens in the U.S. too, it could front itself as like 18 different restaurants. So they kind of like game the system on the Uber Eats, but it's all coming from one point source. So that could potentially be serving hundreds, if not thousands around a locality. Um, So yeah, the foodborne threats uh, are that much more important to understand these, or rather- addressing and surveying these foodborne threats need to keep up with these new business trends. And the transport thing's interesting, too, because, yeah, you know, yeah. You, the restaurant at that point has no longer any kind of control over the quality of that transport, the temperature, uh, the proximity to other things. I don't know if somebody's got a pet in the back or whatever, you yeah. know, level of uh, cleanliness uh, you're, you're depending on every aspect of from the kitchen to
1: the consumer and uh, what's happening along the way. And then there's some very high risk foods like you know if you order sushi is it a you know we all know that uh the the fish and whatever is raw and it's treated very carefully and you know it's super high quality but you know what if it takes an extra hour to get to you you know after you've ordered it or you know it's sitting around somewhere or whatever you just don't know um in terms of quality and you know you can make yourself very sick if uh, people aren't uh, following the correct procedures there's also another trend which is um People setting up, you know, home businesses, and maybe they're cooking from their kitchen. I've seen uh, leaflets come through my door here, you know, for people selling um, chicken sandwiches, uh, chicken burgers, and uh, and wings and things like that. But I know from the address that it's coming from a, a person's house, a home, and you're never going to have like the same level of cleanliness or um, operation procedures or. Uh, separation of things uh, or even training, you know, if you're preparing stuff in a a home as you would uh, in, say, a commercial kitchen. And, you know, those are two very, very different things. And so, you know, it is new levels of threats.
0: Yeah. Oh, and what you've kind of highlighted on is on the micro environments of the localities and those different kinds of kitchen environments. But then also continuously evolving is the macro scale. I think we've talked about it on the past before, the salad from all over the world. Oh, what is it? The well-traveled salad. Right. So we have yeah. super complex supply chains, getting food in from all over the world, uh, plants uh, or, or plants, agriculture, meat products, dairy products, all the different like. And then in the U.S. too, there's the the ongoing conversation of uh, people's autonomy in eating different types of food, pasture or rather unpasteurized milk. As an example. Yeah. Yeah. There's the growing trend cool. and communities who yeah want to make sure that they have access to these things. So
1: uh, food uh, safety. Unfortunately, there are also the people who are. Uh... Don't like vaccines either, you know. So yes. something like diphtheria, you know, is occasionally pops up, and that's a really old disease that we got rid of because of vaccination and pasteurization. Yeah. And if you're not doing either, though, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah. and,
0: and And we're we're speaking generally from, um, you know, the Western world of things, but then also in in different parts of the world, especially where it's a little bit resource scarce, the, the understanding the supply chains, the cleanliness of food. Are all that much more amplified in the way in which it can it can spread, and there isn't necessarily that uh, you know source tracking and shutting down and taking foods off the shelves and uh, all the like and, and resources we have here
1: in the U.S. or uh, across Europe. Yeah, I know in the U.K. Um, they went into a survey of um, food packaging, and uh, mm-hmm. like I say, chicken in, in, in packets, and uh, it was like ninety percent had uh, Campylobacter jejuni on the packet. Like, mm-hmm. that, that's a lost cause at that point. It's so ubiquitous. Yeah. And clearly, you know, it's clearly, I know, something spills and an entire palate um, gets contaminated very quickly. And, you know, that, so people, like, in the UK think, oh, salmonella is the biggest threat from, say, chickens. But actually, I know that uh, most chickens are vaccinated, say, in the UK, and, and most get imported. And so actually, they're, you know, that actual problem isn't really there, it's a lot of the disease people get is actually just Campylobacter, um, which it it's usually not fatal for uh, for people who are young, fit and healthy. But, you know, if you're immunocompromised or whatever, it can make you very, very poorly. And, of course, then when you have the cumulative um, number of days lost in work and stuff, then it all adds up. So sometimes I think we can focus on the wrong threats. Uh, yeah.
0: All right. So another aspect of it that, you know, we kind of highlighted the evolving and continuously dynamic Variables we have to consider with respect to new business trends, complex supply chains, and all the like. But I think the world you and I are most familiar with is on the laboratory side, the evolving technologies that allow us enhanced capabilities to assess what's happening. So, for example, on my end, I came into public health amidst one of those transitions to the technologies that we know best. You know, I came into public health, I think around 2015, which is during the transition in the US public health system from traditional molecular techniques like pulse field gel electrophoresis into the adoption of whole genome sequencing and bioinformatics as the main technology uh, to support surveillance. And it was, it was an interesting time because it was really the best time to be in public health as a bioinformatics scientist, in my opinion, in the U.S., because I got that front row seat to see how does a whole nation's public health system transform to implement these technologies that are clearly outperforming uh, pulse field gel electrophoresis. And to some degree, we're still going through that transition, but there's been a ton of lessons learned over the past eight years that um, we're seeing finally come to fruition uh, and and help us not only address the foodborne side of things, but also these other infectious diseases. And a lot of those technology implementation and best practices helped us even during the
1: COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely. And you could see like some people who were working in food moved into the COVID response as well because there's similar skills that are required. But what I really find fascinating is how recently, because they're doing so much sequencing, say in the US and, and the UK, of foodborne pathogens, you can start to link together so many different things and you can see multi-country outbreaks happening and you can stop them as well. You know, it's it's that ultimate goal of spotting an outbreak quickly enough, stopping it. And then, you know, that's a good public health intervention. But I, I understand there's Probably too many outbreaks uh, to even investigate, you know. So they have to pick the big the, the worst threats.
0: Yeah, it's a crazy conundrum, though, too. And, and I would say though, at least with whole genome sequencing, what we're also identifying is that it helps to prioritize when actual outbreaks are happening. I think that was the big revelation when you're looking at something like pulse field gel electrophoresis versus whole genome sequencing. You have the resolution of the proper outbreaks. You can actually um, get a higher level of granularity beyond just PFGE patterns. Like if you had the same PFGE pattern, you have that's as far as you can get in terms of relatedness. But as soon as you map over whole genome sequencing, be it through you know MLST schemes, whole genome MLST schemes, or even just using something like SNPs, you can break it out a little bit uh, more granularly. You can see where the outbreaks are happening. So I think in a large to a large extent, it also helped to, to identify how to best allocate maybe the epidemiological resources to investigate what's happening as opposed to broadly. Uh, chasing down all these potential leads from PFGE?
1: Yeah, what i found over the years is that every time people come to you with a new problem or a new data set or a new study and they have a particular hypothesis, usually it's wrong. You know, As soon as you look at the genomic data, it's like, no, we can absolutely prove that or we can absolutely rule these things in or out and there's no ambiguity there. Your hypothesis is, you know, it's based on old school you know, epidemiology. Yeah. But actually, we know this is absolutely correct, and it's because you know, in a lot of cases, um, you know, when you go and do these reports and contact tracing, people maybe misremember, or uh, in a lot of cases with foodborne pathogens, it's not what you ate, you know, this morning or yesterday, it's what you ate maybe yeah. a week ago, and people have bad memories; and they don't necessarily remember what the original cause is. You know, some people might say, "Oh well, you know, I ate a bad batch of sausages," uh, you know, yesterday for dinner. And actually, you know, it was the chicken you ate a week ago that was a problem. And it it just takes time, you know, to get into your system and then cause problems. There's very yeah, few that's things, the... chicken toxins kind of stuff. Like there's very few things that are just like instant.
0: Absolutely. I think that's the difficult part on the epidemiology side. So, it, but it, it is amazing to see on the, the lab side, on the bioinformatics side, how quickly the best practices have emerged. And it's not so much a question of, hey, which algorithm, how do I analyze this? It's, it's more about the access to the bioinformatics tools, because I think at this point with whole genome sequencing, and I think we've, we've mentioned this maybe on a few episodes in the past as well, there's more or less, you know exactly what the laboratory is going to do in terms of analysis. They're going to do quality control to, you know, remove the poor read data. They're going to do a de novo assembly, and from that, they're going to do the characterization in terms of identifying the relevant genes of virulence or uh, antimicrobial resistance, and then you know they're going to build some level of phylogenetic a tree through whole genome MLST or SNP approaches. So those best practices have given us that insight, and, and like you said, uh, really indicate the the true relatedness uh, of different samples. And that's those have been tried and true. And there's countless publications showing the utility of these exact methodologies.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And I think for the future, you know, we're going to move to even better methods. You know, like for example, direct from primary samples rather than having to culture. That seems to be the the trend at the moment when people are searching with clinical yeah. isolates is not to culture because it's expensive and takes time. Yeah, so it's, it's quite interesting, you know, that people are moving towards um, PCR-based uh, approaches for detecting pathogens. And it, it gives us less samples, unfortunately, to do whole genome sequencing on. We can't do the same phylogenies. But actually, it's cheaper and better. And
0: so maybe <laughs> we're all it's funny, because as soon as I was talking about having those established best practices in the analytics, this whole conversation of CIDTs, and again, we've mentioned in the past, disrupts that completely. We won't be able to have the whole genome sequencing. We won't be able to do that uh, tried pipeline anymore, because we won't have those tools to necessarily just do QC, de novo assembly, and phylogenetic tree building. The, the, the characterization even alone is going to be quite difficult to associate certain genes with the actual pathogen that's causing. The disease and then the phylogenetics on top of that to have enough uh, confidence in the metagen- metagenomic assemblies uh, to perform
1: the, the relatedness assessment is a bit blurry know, right now. Yeah, I, I know as an intermediate step, um, say standard bio you used to be called Foodime, um, mm. are doing these um, multiplexing uh, systems, so basically amplifying up, say, each gene in salmonella, as an example, yes. um, and then it allows you to do like a CGMLST and so you, from a primary sample, so you know, you can very rapidly get, uh, most of the information. You don't get it all, but you get the the most useful information for say CGMST. So you can do typing, sequence typing, and uh, which is quite useful. And of course, from primary sample, it, it works really well. So you know, it, it saves you that stuff. And so it rather than just doing a straight PCR.
0: Oh, and and we're seeing that yeah looked at pretty closely by by folks in the US as the supplement at this point and potential replacement for whole genome sequencing. And so I haven't seen a ton of the bioinformatics downstream workflows. I've heard a lot about the wet lab techniques. I'm not aware of, or maybe it just hasn't come across because we haven't seen that data quite yet of what the performance is looking like. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to see, okay, how does this relate to if we had the uh, isolate uh, uh, assembly and and map to an allele database versus strictly the amplicon data uh, targeted across.
1: I mean, last I heard, they're more focused on making the uh, wet lab stuff work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, everyone forgets about bioinformatics and how difficult yes. it is. So I'm sure that will be tacked on the end um, and uh, in, in a rush rather, rather than being designed in uh, from the first yeah. place. And it is important, you know, and uh, like it's very frustrating, actually, when you see these huge projects and they focus so much on, say, one area, say, on a wet lab and protocol development. And then, you know, the bioinformatics is kind of this little sliver they hope will get done you know magically by the magic button when actually you do need you know very high quality um, and highly skilled uh, data scientists and mathematicians to actually go and analyze the data and pick it apart and really identify things and they should be at the very early stages of experimental design uh, working all the way through because everything impacts everything else and you don't, you don't want to tack it on the end. And you need scrutiny across these uh, bioinformatics uh,
0: pipelines and and processes as well along the way, because I think there's going to be a lot of nuance to this, because ultimately it needs to be super robust and relatively, you know, packaged for the the distribution at the scale that, you know, the intent is to be, to to replace everyone's whole genome sequencing and bioinformatics in the bionumerics uh, of the world that we live in, it needs to be pretty solid in sound uh, to be able to yeah you know, su- support international foodborne surveillance here
1: absolutely anyway that's uh, been a great little discussion so uh, i can, uh, talk more next week and uh, thank you very much for joining me on the banfmanxal podcast
0: all right yeah we'll see everyone in the next one